Morning, everyone. You can go take a seat. Welcome to Easter here at Seabreeze. We're so glad that you've decided to join us to celebrate the day that Jesus walked out of that tomb. That day was only three years from the day that Jesus made one of his first significant public appearances. It occurred at a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Everyone knew him there. He was the son of the local carpenter. Now, the events of his birth in Bethlehem with the shepherds and the angels had either been long forgotten by this time or quite possibly had never been heard in this town. Bethlehem was a long, long ways away from Nazareth. And Jesus was now 30. So just imagine the shock when Jesus stood up from the crowd and walked to the front of that synagogue. The public reading of Scripture was usually reserved for the elders and the rabbis, and Jesus was neither. So Jesus asked for the scroll of the book of Isaiah to be brought to him, and he began looking for the passage that he wanted to read. Now, it was a scroll, so it must have taken him some time to unravel the thing to chapter 61, which is where he was wanting to read from. But once Jesus found it, he looked up and he read two verses. The scene is recorded for us in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Here's what we read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one. Now, Jesus had their attention because for over 700 years now, God's people had been waiting for the fulfillment of the two verses that he'd read. Every year, they would wonder if this just might be the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone knew these verses. They knew them from memory, and they knew the verse that followed it. Isaiah 61, verse 3 is this verse, it says, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And now this carpenter's son, they'd seen him grow up. Now he is the one saying, I can do all of this. I am the one. Impossible. I mean, of all people, a carpenter like Jesus should know that you can't build anything out of ashes, let alone something of tremendous beauty. I mean, once something is reduced to ashes, its usefulness is done. It's over. I mean, how could this man that they'd known since he was four turn a life from a downward spiral of grief into joy? How could he lift the spirit of heaviness and replace that spirit with clothes that are fit for a celebration or a party. And what would Jesus know about planting seeds that would grow into trees of righteousness that would bless many? But that's exactly what Jesus came to do. The resurrection is the single greatest turnaround moment in all of human history. Now, we love turnaround stories. This has been a great month for some turnaround stories. 
Virginia, just about two weeks ago, won the national championship in men's basketball. And it was a tremendous turnaround because last year, they became the first ever number one seed to be defeated by the number 16 seed in the first round. That had never happened in the history of, of March Madness. And therefore, this became the greatest turnaround moment in the history of the tournament. And then last Sunday, Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters in what many are calling the greatest turnaround moment in all of sports history. It was a long 13 years for Tiger. The end of his marriage, struggle with back problems and surgeries, struggles with addiction. In fact, here's Tiger just less than two years ago at a DUI arrest. What an amazing turnaround. And I have to admit, when I saw Tiger win and do that roar, I mean, that just, I was there. That is so exciting. We love turnaround stories. I think because we all could really use some turnaround, at least in some part of our life. But whether it's the Virginia story or the Tiger Woods story, these stories inspire us. They, they lift our hearts, and in some cases, they inspire us to, to do better. But they really lack the power to turn our lives around. I mean, my week was pretty much the same, even though Tiger won on Sunday. It didn't change my week. <laughs> gave me some things to talk about, but it didn't transform me. It was just fun. But the resurrection that we celebrate today is not just a turnaround story to be amazed at and to gather like on Easter Sunday and talk about it. It is a story that has the power to turn around every single story. So how can the resurrection that we celebrate today resurrect you and me? The answer is found in the two parts of the word itself, the word resurrection. We're going to look at these two parts this morning. Let's begin with the first part, the prefix, the R-E part. If you're taking notes, just go ahead and circle the first two letters in the word resurrection there in your listing guide. The prefix R-E means simply to go back. And so if the resurrection is going to transform us, it begins, first of all, by us recognizing that we have a past to deal with. We have to go back first before we can go forward. The resurrection of Jesus was first a going back event. It started as a death. And Jesus died to address our common history. And that history is sin. Sin is the history behind every individual pile of ashes. It's the driving force behind our heavy hearts, behind our loneliness, behind our struggles. It's often the reason why we do what is wrong rather than what is right, even though we really want to do what is right. The very first sin was committed by Adam and Eve, and it is now referred to as the fall. And that's because ever since then, the human experience has had a downward angle to it. It's been a fight, both individually and collectively, against the downward pull of this original sin. And we feel the pull, all of us do. We feel it on the inside of us, and we feel it in the circumstances around us. No matter how well we fight this downward pull, no one escapes where this fall eventually ends, and that is in our death. Just a few weeks before the death and resurrection of Christ, in John chapter 11, we read the account of the death of someone who had been loved by many. 
Four days after the funeral, most were still there comforting the family because this, well, this was the Jewish custom. But there was one person whose absence was recognized and felt by everyone there. That's because he was probably the closest friend to the person who had died. When the deceased had taken sick, the family had sent word to this friend and it urged him to come immediately. But instead, this friend had sent word back saying that he didn't think the situation merited an immediate return and it wasn't that serious. Well, obviously, it was because his friend had died. Now, four days after the funeral, this friend finally shows up. The sister of, one of the sisters of the deceased is so upset, she refuses to even go out and greet him. What could this friend say? Four days late to a funeral that he had said wasn't probably going to happen. At least that's how they interpreted what he said. What could he say? Well, what he did say is recorded in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, the sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then Jesus goes out to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and asks for the stone to be removed. You can imagine the stir in the crowd. I mean, this has been four days. By now, the body would already be decaying. They must have thought Jesus was just too overcome with grief to even know what he was saying. But they did it. And then in John chapter 11, verse 43 through 44, we read this. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, it says. Well, in just a few weeks from this amazing event, the tables had been turned and Jesus was now the one facing death. And this wasn't death from a sickness. This was a horrible death on a cross. And just like his good friend Lazarus, he was buried in a cave and covered with a stone. But unlike his friend, this stone was sealed with the Roman seal that no one broke unless they were going to risk the penalty of death. And this tomb was guarded with elite Roman guards. The reason is because the rumor of Jesus' power over death based on this event had spread. And the rulers wanted to be sure that this death stuck. Well, we're here today celebrating the fact that it didn't stick. Three days later, he came out of the grave, proving his power over death. But you have to wonder, so what exactly did he mean when he said, I am the resurrection and the life? He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I mean, millions have died believing in Jesus, and what happened to Lazarus has not happened to them. Cemeteries are full of followers of Christ who are still in the grave. And even Lazarus' resurrection was only a temporary one. He died again later, and, well, that time he stayed dead. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus, just weeks before his own resurrection, was doing something in this life that everybody could see. Everyone that was there saw this. That's why it made it into the record of history. Jesus was doing something that everybody could see in this life, raising the dead, to prove his ability to do something that none of us can see, raise the dead in the next life. And we we look at the ups and downs of our life, 
And we easily forget or miss the overall angle of our descent. The fact that we are all falling to our death. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I got a chance to take a week of vacation and we went to uh, the Northern California coast, coastline just north of Big Sur. And this is a picture that I took of the famous Bixby Creek Bridge just north of Big Sur. Some of the most beautiful spots really in all of the world, I think. And as we were crossing this bridge after I took this picture, there was a guy sitting in the middle of the bridge on the edge of the bridge with his feet hanging out over the edge and a camera like this above him. He was taking a picture of his feet hanging out over the edge of the bridge. He wasn't holding on to anything. No one was holding on to him. He wasn't tied off. He was just sitting there taking that picture. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I knew I wasn't going to honk my horn because that might send the guy over the edge. <laughs> but I was just amazed. Why would somebody do this? So when we got back to the place we were staying at that night, I got online just to see, did this guy live? Is there a news report of some guy fell to his death on the Bixby Creek Bridge? And apparently he must have survived because there was nothing online about it. But as I was looking, I discovered that apparently defying gravity on the Bixby Bridge is a common occurrence. It's a thing. Some do the feet thing. Here's a picture that I found on that bridge. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it just makes my stomach turn just to look at that. There's a lot of these. Some of them walk the railing of the bridge. Just crazy. Now, the more sane ones just sit on the ground in the parking lot at the end of the bridge and stick their feet up in there and take a picture like this. Now, that, that's the kind of gravity-defying stunt that I would do. It looks scary, but trust me, he's just sitting in the dirt on the edge of the parking lot, <laughs> lifting his feet up, so maybe he can get some trend uh, on his Instagram account. Now, as I was looking online, I came across the fact that many people die every year defying gravity on this bridge. And they die not because God is mean, but because his laws, like the law of gravity, are very real. And the consequences are very real. Now, I say this because we have all defied God's moral laws. We've walked up to the edge of what he says, and we've dangled our feet out over the edge. And sometimes we've been able to walk away from the edge, but other times we've slipped and we've fallen. Sometimes a stiff breeze of desire has come up while we're on the edge, and it's just <laughs> taken us over, even though we didn't intend to do anything wrong. Other times, to be honest, we've just walked right up to the edge and jumped, defying, knowing what we were doing. And the result is death. Not because God is mean, but because his moral laws are every bit as real as the laws of nature. Now, our death is not an instant death, but we are falling. And one day, we will hit the ground. We will experience death. Now, we feel this downward fall on the inside in many ways. Primarily, we feel it as guilt and shame. Sometimes we feel it as just emptiness or loneliness or anger. And so we all try to do something to counter this fall that we feel on the inside. Some decide that God is the reason for this feeling, and they need to return to God and stop defying his laws, which is a great decision. 
But the problem is it doesn't fix the predicament because it would be kind of like deciding after you've already fallen that it wasn't a very good idea to dangle your feet off the bridge. Well, your assessment is correct, but you can't go back and undo that decision. It's too late. You're already fallen. Some decide that they're, they're going to improve themselves. They're going to become better people. They're going to be nicer people. Again, that is a great decision. But it also does not fix the predicament. It's kind of like extending your arms out and flapping them as hard as you can as you fall, hoping that it will allow you to fly. It won't, obviously. It won't change reality because our arms are not wings and our good deeds are never going to be enough to counter our sin. So God became a man. His name was Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? We didn't even know that was possible. But why would he do that? Well, to walk out on that bridge and jump after us. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full consequences that our own sin deserves. He hit the ground for us. And what he says, like he said with Lazarus, if you will believe in me, you will live even though you die. If you will believe in me, if you will hold on to me mid-flight, if you will follow me in this life, I will cushion your fall. I will hit first. Now, your body will not survive the fall, but your soul will. We can't reverse the fall caused by our sin. We're all in mid-flight, without a parachute, without wings. But what we can decide is how we are going to fall, how we are going to die. Will we face our death alone or with our arms wrapped tightly around the only death that can cushion our death, the death of Jesus Christ? As Jesus hung on that cross during those six hours in agony, there were two men dying with him on crosses to his left and to his right. Now, unlike Jesus, they had done wrong. They were criminals. But they both had a very different response to Jesus over those six hours. And the two different responses is a great picture or image of the two ways that we all still respond to Jesus. People are still responding to Jesus in these two ways. One man, to summarize what he said, basically told Jesus, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be here on this cross. I've been done wrong. Then he turns to Jesus in bitterness and anger and says, if you're the God that you claim to be, you'd fix this. You'd get us all off these crosses. That was one response. The second man responded this way in Luke 23, verses 40 through 43. But the other criminal rebuked him, the first criminal. Don't you fear God? Don't you take this seriously, is what he's saying? Since you're under the same sentence. Now, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. That's the opposite of what the other guy said. But this man, speaking of Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he grabbed onto Jesus one foot before he hit ground. One hour before he hit ground. Just in time. The second guy 
unlike the first guy, admitted he really did deserve what he was getting. He deserved death. He was humble. He was honest. He didn't blame anyone. He didn't point a finger at God. He accepted what he'd done. And therefore, he asked Jesus for help. And he received help in the last moment of his life. 2,000 years later now, people are still responding to their sin and to Jesus pretty much in the exact way that these two men did. We are either refusing to admit our sin and blaming God for whatever's gone wrong in our life, or we are admitting our sin and asking Jesus for help. What happens after we die hinges on which side of the cross we choose before we die. That's the prefix of resurrection. That's the RE part of resurrection. If, if our life is going to be turned around by the resurrection, we first have to address the sinful past that must be dealt with. But once that is done, now we can move to the second part of the work. I want you to go ahead, if you're taking notes, circle the surrection part, the second part of the word resurrection. This points to the fact that not only do we have a past to deal with, but we also have a future to decide about. Surrection comes from the Latin word, which means to surge or to rise. The reason Jesus came was not just to cushion our fall and save us from eternal death, but also to give us eternal life, to, to change our future, the angle of our future, the trajectory of our future. What he wants to do is take the ashes left over from our past, our sinful past, and construct a thing of beauty in the days that we have left in this life. Now, who uses ashes as construction material? Well, Jesus does. He wants to take the very things that we're embarrassed about, that have been the source of, of grief and heaviness and sadness, and he wants to turn those into joy and celebration. He wants to take the seeds of our pain and our failures, and he, he wants to use those seeds to grow in us over time, roots that will become a tree of righteousness that will bless many. But in order for that to happen... We need to not only grab onto Jesus before we hit the ground, we have a very important decision to make with the days that we have left in this life. We must decide to follow his ways into the future and not our ways. This decision is described in 2 Corinthians 5.15. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's not just about the forgiveness. It's about the future as well. You see, death is not just an eventual reality that we will all have to face one day. We die a little every day. Now, if you're getting older, you, you know this. If you're young, you're oblivious to this. For example, yesterday is dead. April 20th, 2019, cannot be resurrected. Whatever you did, whatever I did with that day, is now buried and in the ground. It's gone. But what Jesus gives us the opportunity to do because of his resurrection is to exchange the hours and the days that we have left for something that will last for all of eternity. That's called eternal life. 
not just some destination or experience in the future after we die. It is that, but something that can begin right now. If we decide to live for him, we can take this day and trade it as it's dying for something that lasts forever. How do we do that? Well, we live for him. It doesn't mean we quit our jobs and don't sleep and do nothing but read the Bible and go to church every chance we get. What it does mean is that we stop just asking, what do I want to do today? What do I want to do with my life? And we start asking, what does God want me to do with my day? And then, rather than just trusting our gut, To figure that one out, we put in the effort over time to learn what he wants, what pleases him. We learn his ways so that we can come up with an intelligent answer to that question. And then when we fall down, as we still do, and whenever we get stuck in the ditches of life, we ask God for help to get us back up, and we take his guidance out of the ditch. As Elliot said, starting next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the five ways that we tend to get stuck in life. The circumstances may vary, but the patterns are there. There's five ways. We just keep getting stuck. I'm really excited about this series because it's going to be so helpful. So I invite you to join us. Learn what God has to say about how do you get unstuck. We tend to think of God kind of like a stationary object like a building, like this building. Now, if you walk away from this building and you decide, oh, I left my keys in that building, the building isn't going to move to you. You've got to return to the building. This building is stationary. We kind of think that God is like that. If we decide to walk away from God, our sense is, you know what? I'm going to have to now cover the distance to go back. I'm going to have to do this and this and this for this long before God will finally say, all right, I'll help you now. But the resurrection and the story of Jesus tells us that Jesus dove off the bridge in pursuit of us. What that means is that God is in pursuit of your life. He's in pursuit of my life. And so no matter how far you've walked away or no matter how big of a mess you've made, all you have to do is turn around, and he's right there. Now, there may be some things you have to deal with, but distance between God is not one of them. He's there to forgive, to help, and to guide from this point forward. All because Jesus walked out of that tomb. So if a dead body can walk out of a sealed tomb, that's what we celebrate today. If that can happen and did happen, then no body is beyond hope. That's the great message of the story we celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only historical, verifiable reason for us to look to the future with hope. Everything else, every other reason, is just wishful thinking. From this day forward, we can all begin to turn our days into eternal life. We can get unstuck and get moving and turning our hours into eternal life. As it says in Romans 6, 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. That's not just a story to be marveled at. 
we too may live a new life. That affects our story. The key word in this verse is the word may. We don't have to. It's our choice. The decision is ours. Now, it's not a complicated decision, but it is a big decision. It's a huge decision. It's the decision, basically, to take your life and hand it over to Jesus and say, all right, I know I'm not going to do this perfectly, but from now on, the direction of my life is to do what you want me to do. That's what I'm going to do. Now, if you've never made that decision, that's all you have to say. Jesus, today I'm taking my life and I'm handing it over to you. I trust you and I accept your forgiveness and I'm going to follow you. And then you start learning what Jesus said and you begin to do it. In just a moment, I'm going to close up what I'm saying today in prayer. And this can be a prayer of commitment to Jesus. Now, if, if you're ready to take this step, then I would encourage you to make this prayer yours. I can't think of a better day to do this than Easter. Now, if you've got more questions about this, that's great. Don't take the step until you're ready. You may notice in the pockets and the seats in front of you, we've got a booklet there for you that I would encourage you to take. It's called Two Ways to Live. Go ahead and take a copy of this. It's yours. But it's just one of the best descriptions I've found of what this decision means. It's a great place to get some answers on that. So go ahead and take that. Now, if you're making this decision today for the first time, you can check the box on the front of the connection card and let us know. Either you want some more information about this or you've made this decision. If you want us to be aware of this and be able to help you, we'd love to do that. So just check a box on the front of the connection card so we can get in touch with you. Or if you'd like to talk with someone today about that, or if you want to pray with someone today about that or anything else, then you can make your way over to the sign that says prayer. After we sing our final song, there'll be some folks over there that'd be happy to to spend some time with you in prayer and talking to you about that. But what we celebrate today is not just an amazing turnaround story, but the one story that can turn around every story. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we begin, first of all, by admitting the reality of our circumstance before you. We have all made that moral jump, even as recent as maybe this morning. And because of that and the repeated ways that we've defied you, we are all falling to our death. And Jesus, today we celebrate the power of your resurrection because it is our only hope. Only your body can cushion our fall. Only your life can give us a new life and grant us a very different future. So today in faith, we grab onto you in mid-flight and we accept your forgiveness and we choose now to follow you. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness and salvation and the gift of eternal life. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.